To answer is human. To question is divine. Welcome to the world of the Hidden Gateway, an exhilarating podcast exploring the concepts humans have been struggling with since the dawn of existence, such as, who are we? Is there such a thing as good and evil, or are they arbitrary constructs? Does the paranormal exist? How can we evolve to a higher state? Can our mind influence what we term as reality? Providing a transcendental approach combined with hard-nosed humanistic analysis, we invite you on a journey to question your worldview in this theater of life. Join our host, Justin Williams, as he explores the outer realms of faith, the supernatural, human potential, and even our concepts of the universal creator with a fascinating array of guests. This is the unseen world, magical, mysterious, and mystical, where your only limitation is your imagination. This is The Hidden Gateway. Welcome to another episode of The Hidden Gateway Podcast. I am your host, Justin Williams. And today's guest is Mark Devlin. Mark Devlin is a UK-based club and radio DJ, music journalist, and author. In 2010, Mark underwent what he refers to as a conscious awakening, bringing a new awareness of what's really going on in this world. His special area of interest is how A-list artists have been used to manipulate and mind control the masses in line with a much larger agenda. His books, Music Truth, Volumes 1 and 2, and his most recent, The Cause and the Cure, provide great insight into Mark's message. Mark, welcome to the Hidden Gateway podcast. How are you? Hey, Justin. Good to be with you, brother. Thanks for having me on. All right. All right. Thank you. So, hey, take a minute, if you would, man, and just just tell us who you are, man. Um, Did you grow up in the UK? And I'm, I'm interested to know, when did you first get into music? Yeah, born and bred here in the UK. I was born in the city of Oxford, although I'm completely unconnected to the academic establishment of Oxford. Didn't go to university. I'm not part of any of that system. It's just somewhere I happened to be born. And growing up, I got into music at a very young age off the back of my mum having the radio on in the house, basically. There used to be a Sunday evening chart countdown that was always on the radio at the time that I was having my bath when I was a very young lad. And uh, I used to listen every week and get exposed to all the pop music that was in the charts. And that just sparked my interest in music generally. So I was into pop music all the way up to my teenage years. And then due to the influence of a friend at school, I kind of fine-tuned my tastes and I got more into uh, the sort of black dance music of the day. So it was soul, funk, early hip-hop, early house music. Uh, This was in the mid-80s. And uh, that became my area of musical interest. And I decided I really wanted to become a DJ because I felt such passion and enthusiasm for the music that I loved that I wanted to be able to generate that in other people. And so I set about trying to become a DJ. And I actually made it in radio before I made it in the clubs. I got a job in a radio station in Oxford and I was working pretty much as the tea boy and the dog's body first off. 
uh, doing a few tasks in the newsroom, making the tea, and then I graduated over to the programming side, playing out pre-recorded shows and stuff like that. Mm. And that gave me a good grounding in the whole area of radio and got me entrenched in the music industry. And then I became a club DJ off the back of that a few years down the line. Mm. And that was my main job for 20-odd years. It was my livelihood. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get to travel all over the UK and internationally doing gigs, came to the US a few times, and uh, all was good in that world up until round about 2007, 2008. And that's when my perceptions of what this world is really all about and what's going on started to shift. Mm. And I started to have some really big questions about uh, why there was so much insanity and injustice and chaos in the world and i wanted to know the answers to these questions so i started delving into some alternative research areas got into the books of david ike and uh, the rest as you might say is history i'll take a breath there <laughs> all right man that's awesome you know hearing your story reminds me of uh, what happened to me probably a couple years after you mine was probably 2010 2011 and you know that that mm -hmm. same fire was lit in me and uh, I remember one day after work, I, I went into my room, I sat on my bed, and uh, I just asked for truth. You know, I asked God for truth, and uh, it came to me audible, just as you and I are speaking. And I heard, nothing is as it seems. And that just took me down this long journey of uh, discovery. So it was, uh, it was quite amazing. So I can, I can relate, man. Yeah. Now, um, nothing is what it seems. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth, <laughs> as man. It turns out. Yeah. Nothing is as it seems. Now mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, as I was preparing for our, our interview, I, I learned that, uh, your dad, um, had a, uh, and, and maybe he does to this day, a huge influence on you. He taught you how to be open-minded and to think outside the box. That's right. That's right. My dad had always been an alternative thinker himself. Uh, he's still around. Uh, he's quite old now. Um, and I know that he really regrets the fact that he didn't do anything with the knowledge that he accumulated because I know he's very proud of what I do. He loves the fact that I do my podcasts and my talks and uh, he's kind of living through me. That's what he's told me. You know, he's living his dream through what I'm doing because awesome. he never... Uh, did any of these things himself, didn't write any books or anything like that. But he was the catalyst or, you know, a very catalytical um, uh, uh, factor in getting me into doing what I was doing. So he's someone that's always been able to think outside the box. And as far back as the late 1960s, he was reading the books of Eric von Daniken, mm. very controversial author. Uh, I don't personally go along with what von Daniken has to say about the origins of human civilization being seeded from extraterrestrial races. But nevertheless, it's an alternative way of thinking that my dad embraced at the time. And that kind of set him off uh, looking at all kinds of alternative uh, subjects and different takes on reality. And eventually that led him to David Icke. And uh, back then, around about 2007, he encouraged me to take a look at the books of David Icke. And at the time, I'd been conditioned and programmed, like so many other people, to, to think of David Icke as a nutter, as this poor man that had had some kind of nervous breakdown and lost his mind, mm -hmm. uh, because that's how you're supposed to think about him. Right. But when I actually read the books on his recommendation, I found that they made a whole load of sense and they were answering all these questions that I'd had. They made sense of so much. And for the first 
couple of years, I only looked at the work of David Icke and I lapped up everything that he did. I watched all his talks, all his DVDs, read all his books. And I realized that it was far more healthy to take on a wide eclectic variety of different researchers and influences rather than just listening to one man. Yes. So I then sort of broadened my horizons and started listening to some other authors and researchers and filmmakers and such. And one rabbit hole led to another, uh, spiraled off in so many different directions, so many different tangents. And uh, that was it. You know, the process was underway and there was no stopping it. So I properly got on the path in 2010. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, I started putting out my Good Vibrations podcasts. So I'm about to embark on the 10th anniversary occasion of that series now. And I'm going to be up to about 200 episodes with different guests. Wow. So really, I've been in this game for so long now that it actually gets difficult to remember what life was like before it. <laughs> and I have to really, really delve back into the recesses of my memory to remember what my value system in life used to be because before all this all i lived for was djing music the next gig the next party the next radio show that's all i could think of that was all that was important to me and traveling you know going to different countries and playing my music and seeing different crowds in different clubs and all of that now just seems so long ago a lifetime ago and It was a lifetime ago. I've got mixed emotions about it. So on the one hand, I get very nostalgic sometimes and I get quite sad thinking about how enjoyable life was then. It was actually fun, especially the 90s, the decade of the 90s. I had so much fun. The entire decade of time of my life. Yes, yes. (laughs) Time of my life, time of my life. Um, But then I think even though I was having fun, I was in a state of spiritual ignorance back then. Hmm. Uh, I was operating from a place of base consciousness. I didn't have any of the holistic inner standings I now have about my connectedness to everything else in creation and the true nature of this reality and the fact that there is a divine creative force behind everything that we see. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand any of this back then. And so the flip side of that is that I'm in a far better position now having spiritual knowledge, knowing the difference between right and wrong action, understanding natural law and consequentialism than I ever was back then. I mean, if I'd passed away in that state, I don't like to think of what would have happened to my soul because Mm. I'd have been exiting this place from a... (laughs) In, in a form of very ignorant consciousness. Whereas if I passed away in my sleep tonight, I am much better prepared for what lies beyond than I was back then. Oh man, that is so well said. Much better prepared because you know, there is something that, that lies beyond this realm. And uh, knowing that oh, for you sure. have positioned yourself to be prepared, that is, uh, that's some, uh, some hefty security right there, brother. That's good stuff. Well, you know, let, let, me, let me tell you a funny thing. Uh, I'm into, or I used to be into, what the number one records were on certain dates. So somebody would tell me their birth date, and I would usually be able to tell them what record was number one in the charts on their birthday because I was a bit of a train spotter like that. I memorized dates and all this. And the record that was number one in the British charts on the day I was born in May 1970 was by Norman Greenbaum 
and it's called Spirit in the Sky. Ooh. It's quite a famous Ooh. hippie era record. <laughs> okay. And it was covered by Doctor and the Medics. They had a hit with it in 1986, but the original is the best. It can't be beat. So it's Spirit in the Sky, and the lyrics go, uh, When I die and they lay me to rest, gonna go to the place that's the best. When they lay me down to die, going up to the Spirit in the Sky. And then it goes on to say, prepare yourself, you know it's a must. Got to have a friend named Jesus. So you know that when you die, he's going to set you up with the spirit in the sky. Hmm. Now, I'm not a Christian, but I certainly get with the sentiments of that record. And I like to think that it's a little nod and a wink from the universe, that it's no accident that that was the record that was number (laughs) one on the day that I came into physical existence. Isn't that amazing? Mark, isn't that amazing how that, how that just I do like that. aligns? Yeah. That, is, that is amazing, man. I, I see it. I get it, man. That's, that's awesome. So do you know that record? No, that's, that's the first time I heard of it. Sound, see, now I'm interested. Oh, so it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it awesome. up and listen to it, man, a little, little later today. I, I have to. Yeah, yeah. big tune. <laughs> so it, it sounds big like what, what you've gone through, maybe starting, what, 2008, 9, 10, is, is a, a spiritual mm-hmm. evolution. Is that is yeah. that is that right? Well, it is, yeah, and uh, it's not something I ever planned for, not consciously anyway. Although, before I came into physical manifestation, mm-hmm. this would have been planned on a soul level in terms of what path my life would take. Not every aspect of it, because otherwise I'd be nothing more than a robot just going through pre-programmed motions. There's got to be. Uh, a fair degree of free will. But the basic framework of what I was going to achieve in this life would have been set out before I came here by Mm -hmm. my higher self on a soul level. But I've never been consciously aware of that. And I feel like I've just been stumbling around in the dark. So Mm -hmm. back in those days when I was DJing, I never had any clue that my life was going to turn out this way. And I used to be terrified of some of the things that I'm now doing. So Hmm. I speak at conferences and I get up there in in front of crowds of, you know, thousands of people sometimes and present for a couple of hours. And I speak without notes and I engage an audience for all that time. And if you told me 10 years ago that I would be doing that, I would never have believed you. I used to be terrified of being up there in front of a live audience i never would have imagined i could have done it especially without a script and yet this is my life now and i feel completely up at home up there on a stage talking about (laughs) these subjects that interest me and uh, i came to realize that if you know the subject inside out and you have a passion for it that burns within you you've got nothing to worry about you're going to be fine that's advice i've given other people that have now come to give public talks but you know even the books that i've written and the one that i'm writing at the moment that i'm in the process of i never would have imagined i'd be putting this type of material out Uh a few years ago and yet now it feels completely natural to me and again i look back on what i used to do and so little of that bears any holds any interest for me now you know i mean i miss the music sometimes i miss the good times i miss the the fun and the nostalgia mm-hmm. but i used to go out djing every thursday every friday every saturday throughout the entire year mm-hmm. and i used to love it and for me now that's a bloody nightmare <laughs> the idea of the idea of being out for three late nights in a row <laughs> it just doesn't interest me at all. At all. I just rather be in bed. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, so everything's changed. Everything's changed. Wow. Speaking of, of DJing, Mark, now we, we talked about the spiritual evolution. How does that tie into music or, 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 or DJing, right? Because 
when I when I think about a DJ, I think about someone that has this craft and they have the ability to control the mood and the atmosphere and say like a club. And and I would think that you can actually feel the energy of the crowd as well. And, and, and all in all, it's just a, a way or art, if, if I'm correct, in expressing yourself, right? And Yeah, that's right. And I've heard and, you talk. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, carry on. No, I was just going to say I've heard you talk um, about mainstream music and it is used on a, a larger level kind of in a similar way due to an agenda. Is that right? Yeah, well, all of that is correct. Just addressing the DJ thing, as I said to you earlier, the main reason I wanted to become a DJ is because I wanted other people to feel that burning passion uh, and love for the music that I did. And I think that's why 99% of DJs do pursue that craft. But you can have an incredible degree of control over a crowd. Mm -hmm. And so with that comes responsibility. And I've written about this in my books in terms of the electronic dance music scene, specifically the genre known as EDM. So this is big room club music. And it really became a thing, particularly in the US, around about 2008. And that's when you started to get names like David Guetta and Tiesto and Swedish House Mafia mm. and Axwell and uh, Eric Prids and uh, these kind of big names that would... Uh, you know, rock all these big rooms and these big stadiums and these big clubs and festivals and stuff. And there was a whole sound that went with that phenomenon, which was just known as EDM. And we could take David Guetta as an example, and I've used him as an example in some of my talks. If you look at the way he's up there behind a DJ booth at a huge festival, which might have as many as 50, 100,000 people in attendance, all he's got to do is gesticulate towards the crowd and let's say start clapping his hands above his head mm -hmm. and he can get 50 to 100,000 people to start clapping their hands above their heads <laughs> in mimicking of his motions. That's an incredible amount of control to have over a large number of people. And so straight away we can see that this is a potential vehicle for mass mind control and societal manipulation. And that is what's been going on in the music industry for decades, pretty much since its inception. And my various books have detailed the different ways in which this has been achieved, genre by genre, decade by decade. That's just one example that comes from the dance music world. And I've likened that kind of scenario to a sort of religious congregation. So the DJ is the priest, and the DJ booth is the pulpit, Hmm. And instead of a sermon being delivered, it's like a musical sermon that's coming through the sounds that are being conveyed. There was a great quote from Moby, the techno uh, producer who actually comes from a long-running Freemasonic bloodline family, it turns out, as really? most of these musicians do. Hmm. So many examples of that. But he appeared on a BBC4 program uh, about dance music a few years ago, and he made a very potent quote. And it went along the lines of, uh, imagine we were sitting here 10,000 years ago. Somebody might be compelled to ask, what do you think is causing those people to bang on those animal skin drums and dance around uh, the fire while the embers uh, glimmer in their eyes? He said, you've just described a ceremonial ritual of 10,000 years ago or a dance music club scenario from last night. And what he's saying is that 
the phenomenon of dance music and the way it's been harnessed and the way it's been controlled by the corporations that uh, direct the music industry, it's tapping into primal states of being and uh, going to the very core of the human experience. And it's just repackaging everything for a new generation. Mm. So whereas previously you'd have had tribal civilizations dancing around uh, a campfire and banging out rhythms on drums, now the rhythm is coming through the bass line of the record that's playing in the club, and the club has just become the new setting for the campfire. Uh, but people are still tapping into those primal states of being and that need to connect with uh, rhythm and uh, with what it is to be human. So, like I say, there's a big responsibility that comes with um, being able to control that number of people in that profound a way. And if that falls into the hands of those that don't have humanity's best interests at heart, mm. you've got some potential weaponization on your hands, cultural weaponization. And that is just one aspect of the way in which the music industry has been turned against the general public and used as a tool for mind control and manipulation. Wow. It, that's um, interesting that you say that. Now, I used to watch, say, like the Grammys or the Billboard Awards or um, even, you know, the Super Bowl halftime show, man. And mm. looking at those, I'd say, wow, man, it, it's looks like a ritual you know the a lot of symbolism going on um seen where they use like the baphomet and oof, it's 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 uh kind of mind-blowing to me so you know for you to say that that connects that there is probably some truth to to that mass well they're control. not like rituals they are rituals they are literally rituals okay and all those shows that you just mentioned, the VMAs, the MTV Awards, the U.S. Super Bowl halftime show, the Grammys, even the Eurovision Song Contest, which used to be really cheesy and camp, even that's become really dark and demonic now. Mm. And every time one of these shows comes on, they're absolutely laden and awash with dark occult symbolism and uh you know, uh, mystery school uh, motifs and icons, Freemasonic stuff, Egyptian stuff, uh, secret society stuff, absolutely full of uh, dark Luciferian imagery. And they are huge rituals on, on massive scales with not just the audience in attendance in the venue, but also the television audience that's mm -hmm. tuned in watching of potentially millions upon millions. And all those people are unwittingly taking part in a satanic ritual due to the nature of the individuals and the groups that run the corporate music industry and entertainment generally, unfortunately, they turn out to be Satanists. I wish it was some other way, but uh, that's the truth of the matter. Satanists run the world. Dark mm. occultists run the world. Mm. And that's as true in entertainment as it is in politics or in the media or in big business or science or medicine or any other aspect of life. Entertainment is just one in a long line. So with these shows, they're using them to subliminally program large numbers of people and plant all these symbols and ideas in their subconscious mind without them having any idea that they're there. And it really works. You know, this stuff embeds itself into the subconscious mind and it gets drawn upon and processed uh, at random moments, completely unbeknown to the conscious mind of the experiencer. This is literal magic that's being done through these shows. And the ingenious thing about it is that people uh, 
equate entertainment with just harmless fun. They think that when you're watching some show like that, or you're going to see a band perform, or you're watching a music video, or a movie, or a TV show, you're just unwinding. You're just enjoying your leisure time, <laughs> right. relaxing off the hard day at work. Uh -huh. Nobody's expecting to have their belief systems programmed for them <laughs> when, when they think they're just, uh, you know, having some fun. Well, and uh, that's so, the way it's done under the radar. So it's a, it's a form of social engineering, right? And I believe this is something right. that has been going on for a long time. I know uh, some time ago I, I read or saw something regarding the Beatles, right, and how they were used back in the 50s, maybe early 60s, as a form of social engineering. What do you, what do you know about that? In fact, I even read that there were two Paul McCartneys. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> That is a whole subject in itself. There's a reason why my chapter on McCartney in Musical Truth Volume 1 was the largest chapter in the book. Oh, at 15, really? Okay. So, so you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Musical Truth and, Volume and 1. And you know what? The, the whole subject is such a, a rabbit hole that in Volume 2 of the book, I had to revisit it with a new chapter, looking at some different slants on the story mm. and considering it from some different pers perspectives. And in Musical Truth Volume 3 that I'm writing at the moment, I've got another new chapter looking at even more perspectives and ways wow. of looking at it. So Goodness. the McCartney thing is far from simple. Oh. I mean, in a very brief nutshell, there's a conspiracy theory that's long persisted in the music industry that the real Paul McCartney died in 1966. Mm. According to most versions, of the account he was killed in a car crash and those that controlled the Beatles moved to put in an imposter to play the public role of Paul McCartney and that's who we've had to this day it's not the original Paul that's a very simplified version of the theory okay. but there are many many uh, sort of spin-offs and different tangents and different ways of considering the theory uh, some people think that Paul didn't actually die, but they did bring in uh, a second guy to play the public role. So you've had two of them paging in and out of the role all these years. Uh, some people think that the original guy didn't die and he's still around today. But for a period, they put in a different guy. And a lot of people were fooled into thinking that was the original Paul. So that when the original one came back again, they thought he was the imposter. Uh, the whole thing is not simple, trust me. This is why people have made full-time jobs of researching the so-called Paul is dead phenomenon. But just, just getting back to the Beatles, uh, I personally am of the view that they were a product of the Tavistock Institute of uh, Human Affairs, which is one of the primary social engineering think tanks coming out of the UK. These are organizations that specialize in shaping culture and molding public thought and opinion and belief systems. They do it through very subtle means of psychology and uh, studying anthropology and social sciences. And there's quite a bit of evidence, actually, which different presenters have uh, put forward over the years to suggest that the Beatles were an asset of British military intelligence coming through the Tavistock Institute, working in conjunction with British MI5, MI6. And the other prominent bands from the 1960s would have been the same. The Rolling Stones and The Who are two others that constantly come up okay. in these conversations. And what was going on in Britain at the time in terms of the cultural revolution of the 1960s, the counterculture of those times, was operating in tandem with what was happening in America, largely coming out of California. Uh, 
the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco specifically, and also Laurel Canyon of Los Angeles, that particular neighborhood. Laurel Canyon. I want to ask you about that. Yes. Okay. Sure. That's getting into the work of the late uh, author and researcher Dave McGowan, who Mm. had a great book called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, groundbreaking piece of work, actually, where he uncovered the fact that pretty much all with no exceptions, of the prominent and influential musicians coming out of the hippie counterculture scene of the mid to late 1960s had family connections, usually through the fathers, into the world of military intelligence or different aspects of the military. Right. And when you follow this trend far enough, and when you uncover example after example after example, and when you find the same thing happening with British bands as with American bands, and you find out the dads were almost always connected back into the establishment somehow, you've got to be in a very heavy state of denial or chalk it up to random chance and coincidence at odds of several billion to one to not accept that what we've actually got here is manufactured heroes. (laughs) lifetime actors so these musicians that are put into prominent positions like the beatles the rolling stones does anyone think that any old band can get to hold the level of sway and influence that those two bands did in the 1960s and in the case of the stones right the way through to present day just through sheer hard work and good luck (laughs) not happening not happening (laughs) it doesn't happen like that you get placed there you get chosen and so often it's down to uh what family you come from what your family bloodline is what your ancestry your genealogy is it's different and new generations of the same family bloodlines that get allotted these roles and sometimes they're put into the world of politics sometimes they're put into the world of big business bill gates richard branson you know uh, elon musk jeff bezos these kinds of people sometimes they get to become prominent hollywood actors sometimes they get to be television presenters sometimes they get to be sports stars arnold schwarzenegger Mm -hmm. uh, as an example of a you know bloodline family connection going back different generations and then sometimes they get to be musicians And whatever the role is that's been chosen for them, they get trained up, they become very convincing, very good at what they do, Mm. and they get put out there in the public eye. And the idea is always the same. The controllers want one of their own in these very important influential positions. They don't want to leave it to chance who gets to fill these slots. They want to make sure that these people are completely controlled so that they can be pushing agendas when the time comes. And haven't we had a great example of that over the past year plus? I said I didn't want to talk about the C word, but you can't really avoid it in 2021. (laughs) Right. Uh, The whole COVID agenda, you know, uh, how many obedient celebrities have we seen reinforcing the official message stay at home wear your mask take the vaccine like good little puppy dogs you know doing what their owners tell them so you've had all these sirs a good indicator of who the real pieces of establishment furniture are in the uk are those that have a sir in front of their names they're the ones that have served the system for many many decades and they've been rewarded for services rendered so you've got sir paul mccartney sir ringo star sir mick jagger sir elton john and they've all been out there endorsing the vaccine you know roll up your sleeve folks come on you know let's all do it together and um it's the official version of everything and uh, these individuals are used to prop it up and uh, that's what a lifetime actor's role is so they'll spend most of their time being 
a rock musician going out on tour, making albums. But whenever there's an agenda to be propped up and they need recognized and loved public figures to reinforce certain messages, then these people get called on and they get an agenda handed to them. Right. Here's your script. Read this. <laughs> and they do it because they can't say no. Real life puppets. And I, I've noticed that over the last year, as you mentioned, uh, these celebrities uh, being used to uh, speak on the illness and, and, and the needle. You know, I've seen it. It's ridiculous. Straight, straight puppets. So now in, in, in your in your thoughts, your belief, all your is it all the major A-list celebrities come from some type of bloodline or or have some actually made it maybe not to the level of the Beatles or the Stones, but um, have, have reached a certain level of success. Right. And with that said, what happens when? Well, I know what happens, but I would think that when someone, an artist wants to go astray from the plan right is is that what happens in regards to someone turning out like a michael jackson a prince like obviously obviously those guys were in it right and i remember both of them speaking up and so is it that their deaths are a result of that is that true yeah i can't help noticing that when artists speak out against the industry it always seems to end up the same way i mean the latest example of it was dmx right Right. So DMX, DMX died a couple of weeks ago, same day as Prince Philip, actually. I know who I miss the most. <laughs> and uh, I played many a DMX club banger during my DJ days. Yeah. And, and DMX was someone who fell foul of the industry. Yeah. Uh, he had a very telling track on his album, which was called It's Dark and Hell is Hot, yes. which is an interesting title in its own right. And there was a track on there titled Damien. And in it, you get, in my view, a little glimpse and an insight into the true nature of what happens to these artists when they sign on the dotted line and they become contracted with these major record labels and they become a part of the satanic Luciferian record industry machine. Mm -hmm. So in this track, Damien, DMX is having a conversation with this entity that's kind of taken him over. It's like he's got this voice in his head. And this entity is trying to coerce him into all kinds of negative behavior, like killing people. And uh, he's having this two-way conversation. It's as if he's got this fractured uh, personality, dissociative identity disorder, you know, which may be a side product of mind control, trauma-based mind control programming, which is absolutely endemic in the industry as well. Yes. But it's a very dark track, and it's quite a dark album. And I think there was a little clue there as to what it was that DMX had got himself involved with. It reminds me of the situation with Eminem, because on his first album, you had some very dark tracks where he's talking about demonic entities and right. voices in his head. And uh, I think Eminem, you know, signed the same kind of contract that DMX did and was given that fame and fortune and became as, as successful as... His controllers said he would be, but there was a very heavy price to pay, which was literally their souls. Mm. And DMX is someone that wanted to get out of the industry, and he started getting outspoken about it. He put out a track simply titled The Industry, where he's talking about the demonic nature of it. I remember that. And letting people know that it's not all glitz and glamour and fame and fortune. There's some very dark aspects to the music industry. And DMX got into all kinds of uh, situations, all kinds of brushes with the law. He was going in and out of jail. He was getting put up on gun charges, drug charges, uh, you know, never a dull moment in his life. Yeah. 
And then we hear that he dropped dead at the age of 50 just the other week from some sort of heart failure. There are stories emerging that this was a few days after he took one of the COVID vaccines because apparently he wanted to get out there and start touring and he thought the only way he could start travelling is if he took one of these things. I don't know how much accuracy there is to that account, but whatever the case, you know, uh, speaks out against the industry, turns up dead aged 50. Go figure. (laughs) Michael Jackson, you mentioned... had some very critical things to say about the industry, started making some tracks which were very conscious in nature, very benevolent in nature, turns up dead, age 50, go figure. Hmm. Prince, same way, very outspoken about the industry, about the way Warner Brothers conducted itself, about how it exploited its artists, Uh, went on a chat show with Tavis Riley, started talking about chemtrails, geoengineering. I saw that. Turns up dead in an elevator, age 57. Go figure. Mm. George Michael gets into uh, contractual issues with his record label Sony, talking about how they exploit artists, how he wants to gain control of his master tapes and uh, be independent again. Turns up dead in his bed, on Christmas Day, age 53. Go figure. So, so many examples of this. Uh, You know, the artists who happen to have critical things to say about the industry all happen to turn up dead at relatively young ages. Meanwhile, Mick Jagger, Tom Jones, Elton John, Rod Stewart, Jimmy Page, Bob Dylan, just go on and on and on and on forever (laughs) because they play the game and you'll never hear anything critical from any of them about the industry. They do what they're told. And as a result, they turn out just fine. Right. Another one that comes to mind is Kanye West. I know they've really tried to portray him as being crazy. I know he's, he's tried to buy his masters and he's, he's another one, man. So I I think of him, think of him as well. He's very outspoken. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think, Kanye uh, probably sold his soul as well. Mm -hmm. I also consider Kanye to be someone who's been mind-controlled to oblivion. He shows all the signs have been very heavily programmed. But there have been indications of him breaking his programming as well and his innate humanity starting to shine through. And this was the case at that famous concert that he did in Sacramento where he's said to have started rambling incoherently and going into one of his famous rants. Mm. But for me, rather than just being a meaningless rant, that seemed to be him trying to convey some truth. He was saying things like, I'm on my Donald Trump shit, and uh, Jay, don't be putting those killers up in my head now, addressing Jay-Z. Wow. And talking as if Jay-Z was some kind of handler, like Jay-Z was his mind control handler. Because hmm. this is often what they do. They put one artist with another. So Dr. Dre was put in there as Eminem's handler, for right. example. Okay. Uh, Puffy was Biggie's handler. And with Jay-Z and Kanye, it seems to be a similar story. And I think Kanye, uh, I think there's a good person there. There's a a good soul that's trying to break through, but every time he tries, he just gets reeled back in. They stuck him together with Kim Kardashian in another of these industry-arranged marriages of the Jay-Z, Beyonce type. You know, they put them together and pair them off so often because two are easier to keep an eye on when they're together than uh, when they're separate. And so uh, Kanye's just a mess. His life is a mess. You know, his soul is a mess. But that's what happens when you get in there at this level in the industry, when you get into those upper echelons. And the message I often give to people is if you're a struggling, budding musician, you're actually better off where you are struggling away 
than you ever would be if you got signed up to one of these major labels and got handed one of these contracts. You know, the fame and fortune that you're seeking is not something that you want when you truly come to understand the uh, true nature of it. And you were asking earlier about whether all A-list artists come from these bloodline families. Yeah. No, not all of them. Okay. A great many of them do. Mm-hmm. But there are certainly provisions available for those that don't emanate from any of these important bloodline families. You can uh, work your way up the ladder. So first off, what they're looking for is some genuine skill and talent. And I usually throw Jay-Z in as an example of who I think was a genuine rags-to-riches story. Mm -hmm. So I think Sean Carter, Jay-Z, who started out as a crack dealer on the streets of uh, Brooklyn, New York. You know, he was a street hustler, but he developed rapping skills and he became a gifted lyricist. And I think there was a point where this was spotted and noted by certain parties in the industry. And he was made an offer. He was uh, given the Rockefeller record label that he ran alongside uh, Damon Dash and Kareem Biggs. Biggs, yeah. And and, uh, he was off. You know, that was his career uh, taken off. And before long, he became the number one rapper out there. And I think this would have been down to, first of all, the skill and the talent that had been identified. But more importantly, what he was prepared to do for that fame and fortune. Right. And we get into some very dark and ugly areas here, such as the idea of blood sacrifices, Mm. the willful sacrifice of a close friend or family member to the industry in exchange for that engineered fame and fortune. That's how you show how badly you want it. And the ones that go on to true success that haven't come out of one of these bloodline families are the ones that have been able to uh, have been willing to pay the highest price of that nature in order to achieve it. They've shown that they really want it and they start playing the industry's game and they become owned and you know, there's no way out for them from that point on. So there'll be quite a few artists of that nature in my view that have got there through just being absolutely desperate for the fame and completely lacking in any kind of morals and any kind of scruples and literally literally being prepared to do whatever it takes to get there. Wow. Now, with Jay-Z in in regards to to blood sacrifice, I know you said it had to be a a close friend or a family member. In in your thoughts, who would that be for him? I know he had a nephew that died several years ago, and um, I've heard some even say maybe it was uh, Notorious B.I.G., as well they were supposedly pretty pretty tight yeah yeah that's two of the theories Mm. Uh, one of them holds that notorious big biggie smalls was taken out to facilitate jay-z's rise to fame and when you look at the timeline you know biggie had been the biggest rapper in new york under Mm. the mentorship of puff daddy in the few years up to his death in March 1997. Biggie was, you know, a massive artist on the hip-hop scene. Jay-Z was just kind of bubbling under at the time. Jay-Z dropped his debut album, Reasonable Doubt, in 96. There was actually a track in combination with uh, Biggie that they did together called Brooklyn's Finest. Yes, classic. And, um, yeah, so by March 97, Biggie has died in a hail of gunfire. And then Jay-Z emerges as the number one rapper in New York and the Mm. number one rapper on the scene. And Jay-Z in 97 put out a track called The City Is Mine, where he says lyrics to the effect, he's addressing Biggie, and he says, 
don't worry, you know, the city is mine. I'm holding it down now. Mm-hmm. The crown is mine, mm-hmm. as if it's been passed to him. It's right. his responsibility. And then there's also Jay-Z's nephew, who died in a car that he bought for him. And he actually addresses this on his track, Lost Ones, yes. from one of his albums, where he says, you know, uh, my nephew died in the car I bought, and part of me makes me think it was my fault. And, mm-hmm. Place any, place anything on me, God, but please not that, as if, you know, it's weighing on his conscience and yes. he can't cope with the guilt of it. And so the rumor is that that could have been his blood sacrifice. But there are a surprising number of prominent artists, particularly in the hip-hop scene, actually, where you find close family members that have passed away very suddenly, yeah. often mothers. Kanye West's mother, Donda, right, uh, right. by way of example, we were speaking about him earlier, his mother died. Uh, she went in for some kind of cosmetic surgery. She died on the surgeon's table. And Kanye was very cut up about it, made a track about her. And uh, he put out his album, 808s and Heartbreak, which was a very dark, soul-searching album, hmm. said to have been inspired by the unexpected death of his mother. Uh, how expected it was, I don't know. <laughs> but many other artists' mothers have you know, died suddenly. Andre 3000, out of Outcast, Bruno Mars... Uh, there'll be many others. And yeah. then when it's not mothers, it can be brothers, it can be cousins. Uh, I think a cousin of Rihanna's died a couple of Christmases ago very suddenly. I remember that. Uh, th- 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 there will be many, many other examples. I mean, yeah, Whitney Houston, her daughter, and then the guy, her her boyfriend. Uh, oh. Then, you, then yeah. you have that guy who was uh, originally from, from the East Coast, New York, and made a move out west. Tupac himself, right? He was... Uh, Oh, true, deep, true, deep true. in the industry, I know one of his final <clears throat> final albums while alive was uh, was a Kaluminati, and he he was <laughs> just going yeah, off, um, man. <laughs> Tupac is a complicated one because mm-hmm. instinctively I feel there may be a difference between Tupac and Biggie in terms of uh, what went on there. I think Biggie was genuinely murdered. I think he was taken out. I think he was a sacrifice. He may have been Puff Daddy's sacrifice, maybe not Jay-Z's. But with Tupac, I've got some doubts over whether he actually died the way we were told Hmm. he did, uh, which is controversial subject area. But, you know, my doubts stem from the fact that Tupac was, to my thinking, a lifetime actor. He was literally an actor. You know, he got trained as an actor. He went to ballet dancing school as well you know he trained up in all the performing arts his mother was a prominent member of the black panther party Mm -hmm. and um i suspect that tupac may have been given a social engineering role and placed into the hip-hop scene in part to help foment that whole east coast west coast beef of the mid 90s okay which culminated in the murder of the notorious big and this was around, you know, 95, 96. I remember it well because I was a DJ playing all the records at the time. Right. Uh, any of your younger listeners might not be too familiar with this dynamic, but it was basically uh, completely contrived. And it was pitting the West Coast hip hop scene coming out of Los Angeles with the East Coast hip hop scene coming out of New York and creating a deadly rivalry between the record labels and the executives and the artists. And it was spearheaded or figureheaded by Big E and Puffy representing Bad Boy Records in New York and Suge Knight, the proprietor of Death Row Records with Tupac as his prominent artist over in L.A. And these two 
rival factions were going up against each other and it was inciting the fans to pick a side as well. And uh, then the whole thing just got really violent and really ugly with ostensibly the murder of Tupac first off in September 96, followed by six months later, the murder of Biggie. And uh, to my thinking, this is classic social engineering, divide and conquer, societal control and manipulation at the hands of those that make these things happen and have been doing it forever. And it was just another way of uh, whipping up chaos and confusion and dissent in a particular demographic that they had their sights on at that time. Mm -hmm. And then they moved on and, and started doing it to a different group. But back then it suited them to do a number on hip hop. And I think there was a turning point in the quality of the output around then as well symbolized by the death of Notorious B.I.G. in March 97, because in my opinion, the overall quality in terms of lyrical content and production values of mainstream hip-hop took a severe downturn in the toilet from 1997 onwards. Oh, I agree, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Oh. And and it's it's just been getting worse and worse and worse. So in the early years of the 2000s, output of those years just did not compare to what was coming out in 94, 95, right. the golden years. Right. But then you go a bit further and you get to 2010 and you think, well, I would take the output of 2003 over what's coming out in 2010 <laughs> any day. <laughs> right. And now you look at what's around in 2021 oh. and it makes the output of 2010 feel like golden years classics. Right. Because they just keep taking it further and further into the cesspit. And every, every time you think they've degraded this genre as far as they possibly can in terms of pushing agendas, mm-hmm. in terms of the demonic sonics, just how disgusting and discordant it all sounds, the meaningless, the vacuousness of the lyrics, when you can even hear what they're saying, when they're not just mumbling a whole load of oh, garbage. so bad. Then, so bad. <laughs> they have done such a number on, on hip-hop culture over the past few decades it's tragic it's really tragic it makes me wonder what hip-hop music would be like in 2030 2035 i can't even imagine like where would they well, go we won't be accurately referring to it as hip-hop i mean even the <laughs> stuff that purports to be rap music now it's nothing of the sort no. it bears no resemblance to the original essence of the culture at all, all right. it's an insult to even call it hip-hop yeah i, I agree totally well, what about like AI? You know, <clears throat> my thoughts on AI is, is it, it has some some good, but it, if put in the wrong hands, it can be quite likely <laughs> the end of humanity as we know it if someone went there with it, right? Have you ever yeah. thought about how AI will be used in conjunction with the music in regards to an agenda or control, or is it already happening? Well, it already is. And there's been a normalization of the idea of transhumanism and artificial intelligence for quite a number of years now coming through music, particularly so-called hip-hop and pop music. You know, one of the worst culprits for that has been Will I Am oh. out of the Black Eyed Peas. Okay. And even his name, Will.I.Am, reads like a bloody, <laughs> you know, UP address. Ooh, yes, it does. And the other guy out of that group is called Apple D. App with dots in between. So even their names just sound like web addresses, you know. <laughs> and everything about Will I Am just screams out transhumanism. He is pushing agendas. Now he's clearly mind controlled to oblivion himself. And uh, I did a bit of digging into his background for the upcoming book. I've got some interesting stuff there. So he grew up in a particular district of LA 
which was uh, quite a poor neighborhood. And yet there was a point where he started attending very prestigious schools and later an academy, which had very large, um, you know, term bills. So somehow his mother, single mother, was able to afford to send him to these very prestigious schools. Mm. Next thing you know, he comes out of college or academy or whatever and starts his career in the music industry and then a few years down the line he's pushing and promoting all these transhumanist ai ideas through his imagery and it turns out that william adams his real name will i am has been in attendance at several world economic forum gatherings in davos switzerland is that right alongside klaus schwab architect of the great reset coming out of the wef well will i am his close personal buddies with Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates. So how do you get from being a poor kid in L.A. to uh, going and hanging out with the likes of Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates unless you've been inducted into some kind of club and you're pushing some kind of agenda on behalf of your corporate overlords? So at some point, he was bought out and he was given these agendas to push. And one of his main ones has been trying to convince young people how great and cool technology is and AI and things like this. And it's in preparation for where they want to take society. I'm not saying they're going to be successful in it because the cat is out of the bag now in terms of what the New World Order master plan is of these so-called elite groups and where they want to take things the world economic forums great reset the united nations agenda 2030 all of this there's been enough research done now and there's been enough information presented for us all to know without any doubt that they want a kind of technologically controlled society which is run by ai systems in conjunction with smart grids with constant surveillance and monitoring powered by 5G networks. I mean, it just sounds like a bloody nightmare as I even recite the the word. You know, it's like your worst dystopian nightmare. And they've been preparing us for this kind of future with endless Hollywood movies and TV shows for years as well, depicting these yes. dystopian futuristic landscapes where all these elements are present. But that's where they want to take things. And I think they've attempted to speed up the agenda a fair bit in the last year because they've really thrown everything they've got at us all at once. And whereas ordinarily, going by their past methods, they would have taken much longer to roll these things out gradually, step by step, so that people don't tend to notice it's happening because it's going on so slowly. Because it's all been dumped on us all at once, Mm -hmm. it is causing a lot of people to start paying attention and say, hang on a minute, what's happening? This doesn't look good. Yes, it is. And so not saying they're going to achieve it but part of the process of trying to achieve it has been subliminally implanting these ideas into people's minds to make it much more acceptable and fashionable when it comes along and will i am would have played a role in that through the black ips pushing transhumanism pushing this fusion between technology and humanity and making out that it's great for the future and it's where we're all headed The attempt has been to subliminally prepare people for it, again, bypassing their conscious thought systems, just lodging itself into the subconscious mind. Mm. 
so that they have a much easier job in pushing all this stuff through. But I really think they've shot themselves in the foot by trying to do it all too quickly. And I don't know if they've done that because they've been panicking and they don't feel they've got another 10 or 20 years. Mm. So they've had to dump it all on us in 2020, 2021. But whatever the case, I think the fact that they've shown their hand so obviously now is going to be their undoing, just as a little uh, by the by there. Wow. Okay. Okay. And I know you mentioned earlier, you said a lot of it is done through MK Ultra, which I, I know a bit about. Yeah. You know, I've been researching it here and there over the years. Um, in, in my yeah. opinion, I, you know, just going a different route, you know, you, you see all these mass shootings going on. I think some of those suspects are under the, the same type of uh, control, that MK Ultra control as well. And um, at, at one time, just shooting, circling back to the celebrities, I, I was reading that a lot of them are even blackmailed, you know, not even celebrities, but uh, government officials as well, uh, with all the corruption going on in, in the government. Um, you know, yeah. I learned about this this pizza thing going on that's been in the news the last well, not really in the news, but um, and I, I know you know all about it with with people like uh, Biden and Clinton, sure. Hillary, and, and all those guys. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so MK Ultra was a very far-reaching mind control program coming out of the CIA. Originally, its forerunner, the Office of Strategic Services, before that morphed into the CIA in the late 40s. And in the 1950s, they developed this program where they wanted to experiment with the idea of how the human mind could be manipulated. And it took many different forms. One aspect of it was creating Manchurian Candidate-style assassins. Mm. And that movie, The Manchurian Candidate, the original version of it with Lawrence Harvey and Frank Sinatra in, was telling you basically how the whole thing works. This is what they do so often with Hollywood movies and TV shows. They tell you the truth about what's really going on in the world. Right they tell place. it to the subliminal mind. Yeah. Because they know that if you ever try to tell someone that that Hollywood movie is actually giving you the inside scoop on what's going on. Most people would think you were crazy and they'd say you've been watching too many movies. Meanwhile, they switch on the evening news and believe every goddamn word of it <laughs> when actually you're being lied to. I know, because man. Because it's a complete, a complete inversion. The, the news is where the lies and the fantasy and the, the imagination is. The movies are where the truth is. Exactly. But, um, you know, these Manchurian star, uh, candidate-style assassins were part of the MK Ultra program, they wanted to see whether a human mind could be programmed to turn somebody into a killer and their memories could then be wiped to the point that they just have no recollection of it. So they can become literal killing machines that don't even have self-preservation instincts uh, present within them. Mm. And then when it came to celebrities and famous people, even down to politicians, there are suggestions that John F. Kennedy was subject to mind control himself. Mm. Marilyn Monroe, who was put in as his mistress, was a representative of what's known as beta sex kitten programming. This is uh, yes. an aspect of trauma-based mind control. Right. Uh, the most well-known one when it comes to the entertainment industry is known as monarch programming. Mm. And many, many celebrities have, have undergone this, including some of the names we mentioned earlier. I suspect Kanye West and mm. people like this. So Mariah Carey, Britney Spears, oh, yes. uh, Katy Perry, right. all these kinds of names. And what they do here is often from early childhood. So going back to some of these family bloodlines again, they traumatize their own kids 
This is what people have such a hard time with. You know, these so-called aristocratic, so-called elite families, they're nothing like us, thank God. They have no morals, no scruples, no compassion, no empathy. They're psychopaths, sociopaths, mm. something less than human. And they want to ensure that new generations of these families can be kept with the program and can con continue pushing the agenda. So they have to turn them into psychopaths themselves, and they have to break their consciousness, break their humanity, and turn them into programmed automatons. And they do this through trauma-based mind control. And so from a very early age, when the child's mentality and uh, perception of reality is still being formed, they get subjected to absolutely horrific, unimaginable horrors. Mm. And it causes the mind to shatter into different compartments in order to deal with the trauma. Because the experience is so horrific that the mind works to protect itself by tucking it away into different compartments oh, yes. where it doesn't have to be dealt with. All right. But they realize that these different compartments or what they call mind control alters can be brought forth at will by way of triggers. Hmm. So if programmed in the correct way, every time that person hears a certain word or phrase or piece of music or sees a color or a pattern, those memories can be brought back and these different alters can be triggered. And then when they need to be tucked away again, another trigger phrase can be used and that person returns to the individual that everyone interacts with on an everyday basis. Goodness. So that's what many celebrities have been subjected to. And this ensures that many of them stay on script and do what they're told and don't become rebels because they're just not capable of that kind of independent thought. And so that also accounts for the strange and erratic behaviors of many celebrities and why so many of them seem to go a bit crazy. How many times have you heard people say, oh, these celebrities, they're so crazy, man. Why all do they the all time. go off the rails? Well, yeah. And you hear about them going into rehab. You hear about them becoming addicts or alcoholics and they have to go back into the lab right. to be reprogrammed. Yes. Well, yes, that's what's happening, except it's not some alcoholic rehabilitation clinic. They're going back into the mind control lab to have their programming topped up. And then you mentioned there about the leverage that is had over politicians and other famous people through blackmail and similar means. And that's a real thing as well. So if you think of the Stanley Kubrick movie, Eyes Wide Shut, mm -hmm. in which Kubrick was given us a very accurate depiction of some of these so-called elite parties that uh, members of these factions attend, are required to attend. I've heard many accounts of those that reach a certain level in the music industry, and it will be the same in Hollywood and all these other different walks of life, uh, are required to attend these types of parties, these rituals. And all kinds of stuff goes on there. I'm sure what we saw in Eyes Wide Shut was very mild compared to some of the stuff that I've heard about. And so what happens is these people get involved in these kinds of activities involving children and all sorts of other horrors. And this stuff gets filmed. This is what Jeffrey Epstein was all about. This is what Epstein Island was all about. Right. You know, famous people would get invited out there. Uh, they, they'd go on these expenses paid trips. They'd get all this lavish treatment and stuff and hang out and party with Jeffrey and and all his friends, except that uh, you can bet 
It was all getting filmed. <laughs> and afterwards, uh-huh. they've now got leverage on all these famous and influential people right. whereby they're blackmailed and they're told, if you don't do what you're required to do and what we ask of you, that tape of you doing that thing is going to get out there and your career is going to be ruined huh. and your public re- reputation is finished. That's entirely what the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing was all about. And this has been going on forever. And this is how so many politicians are controlled yeah. into doing things they probably would prefer not to have to do, pushing through agendas, pushing through programs that they would prefer not to have to. But they do have to because of the hold that their owners have over them. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's that's insane, man. That is insane. That's how it works. Mark, how do you stay grounded, man? I mean, you, you're fighting the good fight. You're out here in the streets, like literally in the streets. I, I saw that you were recently at the Unite for Freedom there in London. What do you do to stay yeah, grounded? Yeah. Do, you, do you meditate? Do you pray? I, I saw one time where you said um, we are able to intuit information and knowledge from the universe if we tune our consciousness to it. We all have an infinite connection to the universe. We are all aspects of it so so what do you do man is it through meditation is through you know obviously you believe in something or someone greater than yourself what what keeps you grounded i'm a really bad meditator i've not been (laughs) able to master it at all i just i can't turn off that chatter in my mind you know i'm naturally a very busy person i have to keep busy i always have been i've always had several things on the go at one time and my mind is just constant chatter and I just can't switch off. So every time I've attempted to meditate, I've just failed. Uh, So some things I like to do, I like to go for very long walks. Hmm. I go for a long walk every day. If it's a bright, sunny day, I'll walk for, you know, quite quite some time, a good couple of hours. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to live in a rural area now, surrounded by nature and countryside. So there's some great walks around here, and I just love doing that. I love walking by water, whether it's walking by the seashore, walking by a lake or a river, just getting out there in nature and just reminding myself of the fact that everything is everything and we're, we're connected to everything else. Um, just simple things like that, really. Uh, I like driving. I mean, you know, Driving might not be everybody's idea of unwinding, but I do find it relaxing. Okay. As long as I'm not caught in a traffic jam, I like to go for long drives. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what else? What else? I mean, I used to like traveling before well, this madness situation right. in which we find ourselves. W- one of my biggest passions in life was just going to different parts of the world. I would love nothing more than to jump on a plane, go to a country I'd never been to before, explore some city, get lost in the culture, mm-hmm, soak mm-hmm. up the atmosphere can't do that anymore uh but yeah those things really uh spiritual practices i'm just not very good at i'm not denigrating them in any way Mm -hmm. and i have great admiration for people that can master them Mm -hmm. i just wish i could all right does your does your journey sometimes feel lonely do you sometimes feel isolated because of your views and what you stand for like what have you you know friends and family jobs in the past Uh, i imagine you've received some type of backlash you know because of what you believe in Well, I've been quite fortunate on that front, really, particularly with regards to my family. So, as I mentioned, my dad has always been an open-minded guy, and he's kind of got my mum on side. She doesn't really have a lot of choice having to live with him, you know. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and you know, my 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 wife and uh, one of my daughters is is uh, very sympathetic towards 
what I do and awesome, how yeah. I feel about things. So I get their support. Great. They offer me a lot of uh, morale and encouragement. And I've just got so many friends now, uh, not friends that I see all the time and go down the pub with, but just friends around the world, people that I've connected with, yeah. people whose paths have crossed with mine as a result of me doing this work and putting out this kind of information. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very rich in friends. I have hundreds and hundreds of friends that I connect with online and occasionally I'll bump into them at a conference or some uh, get together or meet up or whatever. So yeah, I, I, it doesn't feel lonely. I've, I'm, I'm not lacking in family and friend support, whatever other complaints I might have. Uh, that's not one of them. That's excellent, man. And you know, the impact you've had on people around the world has been nothing short of amazing. I saw something recently where you were I know, at right <laughs> that i can't you, believe it myself yeah man that that's a, you've been a blessing to so many people and I, I know you said uh i saw online you were at that united for freedom in london and you said people yeah. were just coming up to you mark mark how you doing uh, you made an impact on my life let me get a picture it, i think it, that's great man. it was unbelievable yeah it was unbelievable man you know literally i couldn't take more than about 10 paces before mark mark oh my god <laughs> let me take a selfie with you and then i, I finally get free of that person mark mark and it starts all over again wow and uh yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to complain. It's great that my work is making this kind of impact. This is all I ever wanted. I just wanted to impact large numbers of people, not for any ego reasons, right. purely to spread truth and, and get empowering information out there. That's the only reason I do any of this stuff. Hey, it shows, about- man. It shows. It comes through in, in your language and in, in, in your vibe that you are in it for truth to, to positively, positively impact the lives of others. That, that's good. Oh, well, thank you. And, um, you know, it's in the last year that it's really taken off because I've been doing this for 11 years now, talking about the music industry. And for the first 10, I had a reasonable amount of reach and impact. But this last year, since I started making videos about the scamdemic, <laughs> it's, really, it's just really blown up. And a lot of people have discovered me off the back of the work that I've done on the scamdemic, exposing, you know, the, the biggest fraud and hoax that's ever been perpetrated on humanity and then they're surprised to learn that i've already been in the game for 10 years yeah and i've got books out like, oh wait a minute this, this this guy wrote some books oh he talks about the music industry so yeah that's cool man the, the last year it's just taken off good for you unbelievably excellent excellent yeah. so regarding upcoming projects i know you said you have uh volume three coming out music truth one and two came out yeah. previously and i saw that uh volume one is now on audible correct People can find find that there. Yeah, that's right. So uh, volume one came out in 2016, the printed version. And I started recording the audio book in summer 2018. And I've only just got it out okay, okay. <laughs> two and a half years later. And the reason for that is because it just took so damn long to narrate that huge book, 180,000 words, yeah. it's 17 and a half hours worth of audio. Ooh. And most work was involved in editing it taking out all the coughs and the splutters and stuff and making it flow but that is now available as an audio book as well as a printed book so there's also musical truth volume two which is just in printed form at the moment one day i'll get around to doing an audio book version of that there's the cause and the cure which is my allegorical novel that was a piece of fiction that I put out at the end of 2019. That's in printed and audiobook version as well. Okay. And I'm currently writing Musical Truth Volume 3. It's going really well. I'm about a third of the way through the writing of it. I'm aiming to get it finished by the end of this year. And to be honest with you, Justin, it's, it's keeping me sane. <laughs> good, good. Uh, 
And yeah, I guess it's one of the things that's keeping me grounded as well, there because society is just so crazy right now. Right. And, you know, it's either complete doom, gloom and dread for me, or it's empty promises of, oh, this is going to happen. It's going to be great. And on the 20th of this month, this is going to happen. Yeah. And they never do. Right. So the doom and gloom is doing my head in <laughs> and the empty promises and unfulfilled hopes are doing my head in. Oh. And at least by diving into the book, I'm able to focus and pass the time, know that I'm doing something constructive that's going to have some benefit at the end of it. And I'm finding it a helpful process right now. Excellent. Excellent. Now, people can also find you on Facebook. And uh, I know you have a website. Can you share your website, Facebook, any other, your Twitter? And yeah, you are on Twitter, maybe IG. Where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I don't do Instagram and any of the others. There's just not enough hours in the day. Mm -hmm. But my main hub website is djmarkdevlin.com. So that's like a one-stop shop portal. It's got links to all my podcasts and all my videos from there. But if people want to find me on YouTube, I'm on there as Mark Devlin TV. So it's youtube.com slash Mark Devlin TV. I do regular video updates, giving my thoughts and reflections on things. All my Good Vibrations podcasts are on there where I interview other people. I've got music shows as well. The Sound of Freedom, which is a conscious music showcase. And The Sound of Now, which is Soulful Uplifting House. I do a two-hour show of that each week. And all of that's accessible via djmarkdevlin.com. So if you go there first off, you can get the books from there as well. So everything's hosted at that website. Perfect, perfect. Mark, I have one last request for you, sir, before we let you go. Okay. If you could please leave our listeners uh, with a piece of love, something that they can take going with them for forward, what would you like to tell them? I've been through a lot of difficult situations in my life, but particularly the past year. And, and even this year, I've been through some very challenging personal situations and I've had some very dark days. But one thing I've noticed is you always come through them. You always come out the other side. And at the time when you're experiencing these things, it feels like the end of the world. It feels like everything is lost. It feels like nothing will ever be good again. But it always is. You always come through. And the situation that we're all facing, you know, is obviously hugely challenging for everyone in the world. But we are going to come through this. We are going to pass through the other side. And it is my firm belief that things are going to be better when we do. I think what we are witnessing is the undoing of an extremely evil control system yeah. that has had this reality to itself for way too long. And justice is coming around. The natural order is coming in to readjust things. And I feel better days for all of us are around the corner. We've just got to get through this. We've just got to weather this storm. And we will. And uh, I just like to leave things on those words. Perfect. Perfect. And that resonates with me so much, man. Especially when you said um, you always come through the challenging situations. You always make it through. Um, I'm sure that sure. resonates with a lot of our listeners. And like I said, me as well. I uh, just on a personal note, I, I went I was involved in a um, ayahuasca ceremony uh, about two weeks ago. And uh, it was okay. experience of a lifetime. I literally walk with God for three days. And uh, wow. one thing that he said to me, 
he, he said uh, his promise is that the sun will always rise and uh, that it does. So uh, just to tie that into what you said, you, we always come through those challenging situ- situations because um, during that three-day ceremony, I was literally out in the desert freezing my butt off. Started at around midnight. We didn't finish up until about 6, 7 in the morning. And, man, it was tough. It was the most challenging thing I probably had to de- deal with in life, maybe maybe top three, not if not the most. But, uh, yeah, uh, during that night when things got tough and I wanted to break, he said, the sun will rise. And when I saw that sun each morning, I just gave thanks, man. So um, I want to thank wow. you for coming on the Hidden Gateway podcast. It's been a pleasure. I wish you nothing but uh, continued success as you continue to step into your greatness and, and speak your truth, man. What you're doing is beautiful, and you will go on to do even greater things. Uh, your, your journey has been laid. Well, thanks so much, brother. And I'm resonating with what you're doing as well you know you, you're doing a great job with the show and i hear your message there about that ayahuasca ceremony that's not an experience i've ever had but i hope to one day and uh i can imagine that must be just so profound oh to, uh, man life has been forever changed man life has been forever changed yeah yes sir yeah yeah i highly I recommend mean, did, did you did you have to confront sort of ugly aspects of yourself that you normally keep hidden is that, is that what it does to you is that part of the process i did absolutely and it's 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 been a, a you know it's been a process um you know and i don't want to take anything away away from 2020 and it is very unfortunate uh what what was ha- what has happened to people in this world in 2020 last year but mm. um i tell people 2020 was was literally probably the best year of my life um you know doing this podcast is is, is one thing you know i was kind of always an introvert quiet guy and had some experiences uh, in 2020 that really allowed me to 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 break out and step outside the box with my my thinking and my actions, and uh, I had to deal with that again uh, during uh, the three night ayahuasca ceremony, and uh, I had to face it. I, I literally had a talk with my true self, <laughs> if, if, as crazy as that may sound to others, but it's real, wow. and uh, mm-hmm. learned so much about myself and, and learned so much about the Father and, and His plan for. Uh, you know, humanity and, and myself, of course, going forward, man. And, uh, I, you know, just to circle back to your question, I, I sure did, man. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because even during this time, I also did a three-day fast. So the ceremony started Friday night. My last meal was uh, Friday at noon and uh, didn't eat again wow. until Monday afternoon. And, you know, I, I don't advise anyone just to up and do that. You know, I had prepared my body for it. I started fasting in March, March, March of 2020. So my body was familiar with fasting. That's the longest I've ever fasted for three days, but I've been doing intermittent fasting for, for a little over a year now. But, uh, man, I went deep spiritually, my friend. I did. And uh, yeah. I'll commend you on that. That's a discipline for thank sure. You. Thank you, man. Uh, that, that's what I needed, man. And, again, change person and I'm really stepping into my own and to be able to have people like yourself on this show is, is a dream come true, man. And again, I thank you for, for taking the time out and, uh, sharing your knowledge, your wisdom with the listeners of the hidden gateway podcast. And, uh, we'll have to do this again, man, at some point, whether it's a year, two, three years down the line, man, we'll let to have you back on. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. And I firmly believe that we cross the paths of those people that we're meant to yes. in these lives. And I do get a lot of invites to go on shows and I do have to turn some of them down because I just can't fit them all in. And, uh, you know, sometimes they arrive at bad times in my life. Uh, so I don't say yes to all the invitations I get. I did say yes to yours and I'm really glad that I did because I feel we've really connected and resonated today. So 
it's an experience that uh, I'm glad happened. Likewise, brother. Likewise. And to the listeners of the Hidden Gateway podcast, we really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hidden Gateway. And uh, remember, you can stay connected with us directly through HiddenGateway.com. You can also join the discussion on Twitter, Hidden underscore Gateway, and on Instagram at Hidden underscore Gateway. And as always, if you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through support at TheHiddenGateway.com. We want to thank you for pushing your mind towards a better reality. And don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. This concludes this week's episode. Until next time, stay positive, stay questioning, be love, and be free. The Hidden Gateway, out.